You are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Good morning. I'm Cherie Hall, and I attend the Southside GC, and we'd love to have you join us if you're not in a GC at this time. Um, I have the privilege of reading for you the scripture, which is Luke 2, verses 22 to 52. Would you please follow along? And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms And blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, And then, as a widow, until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be with the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. 
And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. Happy uh, New Year's Eve um, to you. And I hope you guys have had a fantastic Christmas with your families and uh, friends and all those good things. It's good to see you. Uh, for those of you guys that may be visiting this morning, my name is Austin Baker. I'm the lead pastor here at Emmanuel Church. Glad to have you uh, with us. Um, it's just always, it's always a good time of the year when I meet a lot of your families because you're here, and I'm excited to meet you if I haven't met you already, but glad you're with us this morning. Uh, one thing, just before we start, um, that I like to do every year that I will tag in the newsletter tomorrow, if you get the newsletter, it, coming into the first of the year, I am a resolutions maker. Uh, I fail, like every year, I don't know why I keep doing it, but I keep doing it. Um, and so one of the things I do not fail in uh, is I read... Jonathan Edwards' resolutions on the 1st of January every year. So Jonathan Edwards, pastor back in the 18th century, uh, he wrote a list of resolutions that I think is, are very helpful and very uh, just a good reminder at the beginning of every year what we want to be about as believers in Christ, where we want our minds to go and our hearts to go and all those things. So I'm going to put that in the newsletter for you tomorrow if you want to start your own kind of uh, start of the year resolutions by reading Edwards's resolutions. Um, I encourage you to do that, but I'll put that in the newsletter. I want to encourage you to, uh, to do that. So uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 52 is where we pick up this morning. This is, this is a very unique place in the gospel accounts. No other gospel writer captures the childhood of Jesus the way the gospel of Luke does. Matthew is the only other gospel account. I'm going to move this. Sorry, I forgot it was right there. Um, Matthew, getting a double, I feel like I'm in a press conference. Um, Matthew uh, also records the birth of Jesus, the only other gospel writer to do that. Um, Matthew also records a visit from the Magi, the East, in Matthew chapter 2. When, Luke, when Jesus was probably about two or three years old, but nobody captures really the, these accounts of his childhood that we're going to cover today other than the Gospel of Luke, namely his visit to the temple when he's 40 days old and his visit to the temple again when he's 12 years old. And everything we're going to study this morning is unique, and as we're going to see, it's a pretty, a pretty incredible count where we really kind of see just how much Jesus understood himself, understood his own role here in this world to be our Messiah, and all the things we're going to glean out of his own self-understanding that we can take for today. So I'm going to pray for us again uh, before we start unpacking these 30 verses. Uh, so will you join me in prayer? Father, I do thank you for your word, and I thank you, Lord, for new years and new beginnings and fresh starts. And um, just uh, this time of the year, it truly is great, and I'm thankful for it every year, and so I pray, Father, even as we embark upon a new year, that you give us just a greater hunger for your word, a greater thirst for righteousness, 
a greater desire to see you lifted up in our church and in our own families and lives. And may this be a year of just great things you're doing in us and among us at Emmanuel Church. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're on the heels, if you're just joining us today and you're new maybe to the gospel account, we're on the heels of the birth of Christ. We just saw the shepherds visit Jesus earlier in chapter 2. Mary once again treasuring up these things in her heart at the, end, or the middle of chapter 2, excuse me. And then in verse 21 of chapter 2, Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day. So that's kind of where we're coming into this story. And then 32 days later, so day 40 of the life of Jesus, Joseph and Mary bring Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to, as verse 22 says, present him to the Lord. Now, there are three different Jewish ceremonies kind of alluded to here in the first three verses chapter of chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. You have a purification ceremony that's referred to. They're going up for their purification. That's from Leviticus chapter 12. You have the presentation of the firstborn in the temple. That's Exodus chapter 13. They're taking Jesus to present him in the temple. And then you have this dedication ceremony of the firstborn to the Lord, which you see Hannah doing back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, kind of with Samuel, kind of the same deal. And there are a few things here we notice about Joseph and Mary from these first three verses, just kind of diving right in here. The first thing is they were extremely pious, extremely pious. That word pious, piety, maybe you've heard it that way, sometimes has a, gets a bad rap in our culture. It's used a lot of times in a condescending way, oh, isn't isn't he or she so pious? You know, they're very religious. You know, I even heard uh, my 80-year-old grandfather who has started to date again. Uh, it's interesting. Um, he said just the other day, literally just a few days ago, she's very religious. She's very pious. Um, it's a direct quote from Royce Martin. Uh, but being pious or piety uh, simply means having a high reverence for God that generates much practice. So some of us in this room may be considered pious because we love together on Sundays. We read the scriptures and pray throughout the week. We attend gospel communities, small groups in our church. And it could be said of many of us in this room that we are pious people. We have a high esteem of the holiness and the glory of God, and that leads us to honor him with our lives, how we live. So Mary and Joseph are presented here at the very outset of our text for this morning as law-abiding, practicing Jews, very pious people. They're seeking to fulfill all the obligations of the law when it comes to post-birth practices in Judaism. But second, they're also poor. They're poor, they're pious, and they're poor. Leviticus 12, the text I referred to earlier, that talks about this purification rite they're coming to do. It's a chapter that describes uh, that when you come after you've given birth to the the woman, the mother, when you come, you need to bring two animals with you, a lamb for a burnt offering and a turtle dove or a pigeon for a sin offering. But if your family couldn't afford a lamb, then you can bring two turtle doves or two pigeons, which is what you have being brought here by Joseph and Mary. It's the offering of the poor. Jesus was born into poverty. You know, he didn't come into a palace. He didn't come into a mansion. He didn't even come into a middle-class, suburban, split-level home. He was born into a family who knew poverty. He came into this world identifying as 
one of the very people he would come to save, the poor, physically poor, but also the poor in spirit. And there are a few things that could be said here about poverty from this current account we have of Mary and Joseph and Jesus that I just want to share with you. First, being poor is not a sin. You know, there may be some Christians out there, well, let me back up. There may be some charlatans out there on TV that you see that may try to convince you that poverty is present in your life because there's some unrepentant sin in your own life. And so what you need to do is you do need to repent of that sin, turn to God, and then out of thanksgiving to him for saving you, give me all your money. Sow your $10, your $20, your life savings, and God will give back to you tenfold, fiftyfold, a hundredfold what you sow. And that's just a trash gospel. That's not real. It's garbage. Now, is it possible that one may find themselves in poverty because of their own sinful decisions? Well, yeah, very much so. It's possible. Look at the prodigal son. Takes all his wealth, squanders it all, ends up in poverty, right? So he comes back to his father. But is all poverty a result of someone's direct sinful behavior and actions? Well, no, of course it's not. Jesus committed no sin. He had no inherent sin in him. Yet he was born into a poor family. So because the sinless Christ experienced poverty, poverty in and of itself cannot possibly all the time be a direct result of our sins. Second, poverty does not stop someone from worshiping God. Mary and Joseph, they, uh, they continue to come to the temple to worship. They don't let their circumstances prevent them from finding joy and expressing praise and gratitude and sacrifice. They still marvel, as we're going to see in a second, at the words of Simeon. And they rejoice with Anna. She praises God for his provision in Jesus. Third, poverty doesn't give us a pass to unrighteousness. What I mean by that is, I think it's very particular, a, a very a big one in our particular Western context, is Mary and Joseph in their poverty, they still obey God by following the law and bringing an offering. They're still sacrificial, even in their poverty. You know, simply because they're poor, they don't try to justify passing on their gift from the temple. I'll just wait until I get out of debt a bit or earn a little bit more or we're in a better spot as a family, then I will come and bring my offering to the temple. Now, they give anyway. They seek to offer God what they have and honor him with their giving. Now, praise the Lord. You know, we still don't uh, bring animals to be sacrificed as gifts. I don't think I could be your pastor if I had to slaughter animals when you came in here every Sunday, which would probably be Saturday still, if we're still in the old covenant, um, I would disqualify myself. I mean, I have, to, I have to put the bar down when I have blood taken at the, at the doctor because I'm going to pass out. I just can't do it, um, which, well, anyway, I can go more into that, but I'm not going to. Uh, but the New Testament still invites us to give, not out of a duty of obligation, but out of cheerfulness and joy. Why? Because everything we have is the Lord's already. That's the first reason. And secondly, by inviting us to give, 
God is ultimately asking us to participate in something he has been doing from the very beginning. Giving. I mean, in giving, we are participating in an act that God has been doing before the foundations of the earth were laid. It shows us that we are like him, that he's making us into a new people in Christ Jesus because he is a generous, cheerful giver. He's invited us to be generous, cheerful givers. So we're not to let our physical circumstances determine our obedience or to pursue righteousness, even in the midst of poverty. And then fourth, in poverty, we have the opportunity to teach our kids about what ultimately matters. You know, as Jesus grew in the house of Mary and Joseph, he would see two parents who sought to honor God and pursue righteousness, even in their lack. You know, even in their poverty, he would see the joyful generosity of his parents, what they sacrificed, what they chose to give up materially, the experiences they forewent as a family, maybe. And he would learn to hold material things loosely in order to gain that which can never rust nor be destroyed or stolen. You know, Proverbs 26.8, excuse me, 28.6 says, Better is a poor man who walks in integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. So parents, if you're a parent in this room, what are we teaching our kids? I'm speaking to myself here. What are we teaching our kids through our pursuit of generosity and righteousness? You know, as they get older, if they were to look at how we spend our money, how we spend our time, where we go as a family, what conclusions could they potentially draw about our habits, what we value? What are they learning to value? What are they seeing that's most important in our lives? They're going to gauge us much more by our actions and our words. So what are we teaching them? Mary and Joseph, although they were poor, they continued to be pious parents, and they, they set the tone for their newly formed family that would carry it forward for years and years to come. And you know the irony of all this? This is interesting. The irony of all this, I was thinking about this this week. You know, Mary and Joseph couldn't afford a lamb in their poverty. Yet what they brought to the temple in Jesus was the lamb who would do away with all other lambs. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A lamb you can't put a price tag on. A lamb who could pay only what, what cannot be paid by us, namely achieving atonement for our sins. That's what they were bringing to the temple. They didn't know it at the time. They didn't know it at the time. But it's just kind of this irony Luke's playing here, which is pretty amazing. But two people could see it to a certain degree. They could see the Lamb of God to a certain degree, and that was Simeon and Anna. Simeon and Anna. So Mary and Joseph, they come to the temple with Jesus, you now 40 days old. They're met there by a man named Simeon. And we don't explicitly know a lot about Simeon from the text. We don't know his age or his profession or his marital status from the text. But we can make some responsible inferences given our context about who he was. So, verse 25 tells us that he was a man righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
So Simeon was a simple man, probably not a priest or a Levite, who was living in Jerusalem. And he's called righteous, which is a word used to describe men uh, like Job or Cornelius or Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist in our scriptures. And he was waiting on the consolation of Israel. You know, we sing some Christmas songs to talk about Jesus being our consolation, the consolation of Israel. Basically, it just means it's an Old Testament phrase used to describe comfort or peace that would be brought through the Lord's Messiah. So he's waiting for this coming peace, this coming comfort to be brought through the coming Messiah. And we can also infer from the text that Simeon was old. You know, the Holy Spirit had told him in verse 26 that he would not die until he'd seen the Messiah. And then the first phrase of his song in verse 29, which we'll come back to in a second, it leads us to believe he's been waiting a long time. And now he can die in peace, having seen the Lord fulfill his word. So Simeon, after probably many days of waiting, many days of temple activity in his long life, he's led by the Holy Spirit to the temple the day Jesus is brought by his parents. And when Simeon sees them, he approaches them, and he takes the baby in his arms, and he begins to bless God through, for the fifth time in Luke chapters 1 and 2, a song. The fifth song in these first two chapters. But Before we get into the content of the song, there's also another woman there who's rejoicing in this baby, Anna the prophetess. Luke has emphasized and will continue to emphasize the growing number of women who responded to Jesus throughout his ministry. He's already done it with Mary and Elizabeth and he does it here with Anna as well. And Anna was married to her husband for seven years before her husband died. She was widowed. Instead of remarrying, probably in her early 20s, if we had to guess, instead of remarrying, she decided to devote the remainder of her days to the service to the service of the Lord, and now she's 84 years old. Fasting, praying, doing temple work, and now she is old. And she sees this baby, and her response, much like the response of many we've seen already in Luke chapters 1 and 2, is one of thanksgiving and of praise and of proclamation. Salvation had come. And she's beholding it with her very eyes. So Simeon and Anna, two older saints waiting patiently for the Lord to fulfill his word. And you know, there's something really beautiful, something really beautiful in the waiting of older saints. Is there not? And I've seen that age, in my own experience, I'm not of aging necessarily, although I'm getting older, but I've seen in my interactions with other people, that age can tend to make some people, not all people, but some people, quite ornery and bitter, sometimes angry. You know, maybe it's because you, as you get older, maybe you reflect on your life and you look back and you know, maybe you see events that instead of producing gratitude in you, Thanksgiving in you, they just make you hardened you know, frustrated that something didn't pan out the way you wanted it to pan out and kind of turns you into curmudgeon, you know, instead of a, a face radiating invitation and joy, your face is kind of shriveled up in anger and regret. Maybe you know people like that. Maybe I'm the only one. 
Maybe you just spent a few days with people like that. I don't know. Um, but they're not very kind, not very, opin- or not very kind, very opinionated. The you know, glass is always half empty. There's always something wrong with the younger generation. <laughs> they tell you that all the time. You know, don't have many uplifting things to say. You can't even tell if they really like being around you, um, you know. But there's something beautiful about the joyful patience of Simeon and Anna and men and women like that. You know, if I could picture them in my head, if I could just draw a mental image in my mind, they're the faithful saints who are dependable and steady and constant. They show up every day with joy, with thanksgiving, and full of patience. Faces are just full of invitation. Their body language is just full of hospitality. We all know people like that. And Simeon and Anna, they see this baby, the the consolation, the redemption of Israel, and they can do nothing but sing. And once again, God demonstrates that he is faithful to his word, regardless of how long they had to wait. They always had hope. They always believed God would come through, and they waited patiently for it. And here's what Simeon sings. I want us to read it again. Verses 29 to 32. This is his song. It says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So there's a few components of this song I want us to bring out. First, God's salvation and Jesus are inextricably tied together. They cannot be separated. You know, Simeon in his old aging, dimming eyes, he beholds, life in this baby. He beholds the Savior in this baby. And as he's looking at the baby, all right, so this song is directed towards the baby. As he's looking at the baby, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, a.k.a. salvation is in this baby. It's a personification of salvation. Jesus and salvation linked together forever. I see Jesus, I see salvation. They can't be separated. Salvation cannot be found anywhere else outside of Christ, church. You know, Jesus, as we're seeing Simeon declare here, he's the personification of salvation. And the New Testament says as much in a variety of places. You know, one of the first declarations of the apostles in the gospel, sorry, not the gospel, the book of Acts, Luke's second volume, as Peter and John are standing before the Jewish council in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, they say, There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In Jesus and Jesus alone is found salvation. No other place. And Simeon's song also fills us in that the coming Messiah was not an afterthought, but it was prepared prepared before all the peoples, brought about, thought about, planned. You know, God had planned and foreordained his Messiah to come. This was plan A. It was not plan B. It wasn't like God was scrambling when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, and he's like, what am I going to do? This is not the plan I had. No, God had preordained Christ to come 
wasn't a thrown, thrown together idea the last minute, but it was planned beforehand that Christ would come. Third, salvation is for all the nations. This is the first time the word Gentiles is explicitly used in the Gospel of Luke, but that will remain a constant theme throughout the rest of this book. Salvation personified and found in Jesus is for all nations and for all tribes and tongues and peoples. Praise the Lord for us in America, right? We are the nations. Praise the Lord that the gospel is inclusive in that way. It's for all peoples from all nations. And this salvation will be like a light, illumination, Lighting up the desperation of darkness makes our minds go back to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 60, verses 1 through 3, spoken 700 years before Jesus even came. The prophet writes, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. No nation has to sit in darkness any longer, church. No person has to feel the weight of hopelessness any longer, church. Behold on us, Emmanuel Church, on us a light has dawned in Christ Jesus. But even in the midst of the good news, which that's all great news, Simeon's words aren't all rosy. Look with me again at verses 34 and 35. So Mary and Joseph, they marvel at this, these words. And then verses 34 and 35, Simeon turns to Mary and he says this. He says, blessed, behold, excuse me, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This phrase has two connotations, one national and one individual. On a national scale, Jesus would divide a nation. He would divide Israel, namely. You'll see this all throughout Luke. Two groups are formed in the Gospel of Luke, really in all the Gospel accounts. Those who are for Jesus and those who seek to destroy Jesus. And it's a fulfillment of, again, the prophet Isaiah's words that, that Peter would echo in 1 Peter chapter 2, Paul would take up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Or Isaiah 28, 16 says, The Lord God says, Behold, I'm the one who's laid a, as a foundation in Zion a stone, tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. This stone that's being laid in Christ Jesus will be a cornerstone for some, and Paul writes, a stumbling block for others. A cornerstone that would be the foundation on which we build our lives for those who've responded to Christ or a stumbling block of offense to those who are taken aback by Jesus. But then for Mary personally, Jesus would be a source of intense emotional pain. And I think in particular, there's two areas of pain she would experience. I think one is more immediate as we're gonna see in the account of him as a boy. One, Jesus would begin to assemble a new family, a spiritual family, a family that would take precedent even over his own physical family. That's not to say Jesus did not love his mom. It's not to say that Jesus didn't desire what's best for Mary. 
but his spiritual priorities would always trump his familial priorities. And that's just a source of pain for any mother, right? I mean, how many weekends do I have to come home from seeing family because I gotta be here on Sundays, right? My mom loves that I'm a pastor, but that's also a source of parting and pain, right? But then second, I think this is an allusion to the cross. We know Mary was at the cross when Jesus was crucified. You know, John tells us that in his gospel. But I cannot even begin to imagine the pain of watching your son be brutally mistreated and murdered for crimes he never committed. I'm confident in that moment as, as she watched her son hang there on the cross as his hands and feet were run through with those nails and his side was pierced with that spear that, that Mary felt that pain like a sword running through her own soul. The words of Simeon. Jesus would bring hope, but Jesus would also bring division. Jesus would bring healing, but Jesus would also sometimes bring pain. The light of Christ would illuminate, but his light would also expose. And then 12 years later, on another visit to the temple, Mary would begin to experience some of this emotional pain. So look, verses 41 to 52. They give an account of another temple visit, this time when Jesus was about 12 years old. You know, when Hebrew boys turned 13, they were considered responsible men. Right? That's why they still have bar mitzvahs, which literally means son of the commandment. So they are now responding. Can you imagine 13-year-olds? Like, like, I mean, some of that's terrifying to some of us. Um, like, but Jewish teenagers you know, have bar mitzvahs, son of the commandment. When you are now responsible for your actions and for your religious duties and all these different things, and this is true in the first century. And so First century Jewish families, they would travel to Jerusalem on, when their sons were 12 to be shown around the city and affiliated and acclimated to the practices they would now have to participate in when they turned 13. So here's what's, that's what's going on. They're heading to Jerusalem to do this. And on their way back, Mary and Joseph realized a day into their 80-mile trek from Nazareth, back to Nazareth, excuse me, that Jesus is not with them. You know, groups used to travel in big caravans on long trips because robbers and thieves would hide in crevices of rocks and things like that to, to rob and to steal from smaller groups or individuals. And so they traveled together in packs to make long journeys so they would be, they would be free from the, the risk of being robbed. But they realized that he's not with the rest of the family. They assumed he was. And so they start freaking out. They've just lost the son of God. What are we going to do? So they go a day's journey back. So they've been traveling for a day. So a day's journey back to Jerusalem. They look for him three more days. And then after the third day, they find him. So potentially five days total, five days of not knowing where your son is. Your divine son, where he is. And of all the places he could be, you know, he's not gallivanting. He's not sowing wild oats. He hasn't been kidnapped for ransom. He's a good kid. He's in the temple. He's sitting with the Jewish leaders, asking them questions and gaining understanding in the law. And Jesus isn't doing the teaching here. Some people would lead you to believe that, but he's listening. He's asking questions. I mean, truly, 
He's truly learning in a very human way, right? How any of us learn. And his understanding is blowing the minds of these religious leaders. And I think it's really important to bring out here something key, really key in our text for this morning. And it's this fact, and I talked about it a little bit at a Christmas Eve service, but Jesus was truly human. He was truly a human being. You know, we believe as Christians that the Bible teaches this mysterious truth, that Jesus is truly God and he's truly man, and this mystical union in one person, fully God, fully man. All the characteristics of divinity rest within him, even as a baby, and at the same time, he had to be made fully like us in every respect to be our high priest, yet without sin. Look at verse 40. It says, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then look down at verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Almost verbatim, the same phrase is given. Why? Because Luke really wants us to press into the humanity of Christ. That he grew and became physically strong, like a human being, like a normal human. Grew physically in stature. Even as he grew and became physically strong, he also grew cognitively, grew in wisdom, his understanding of the world and of life. And yet the Lord was with him in a unique and special way. So when it comes to Jesus learning here as a 12-year-old boy, you know, I truly believe his experience of learning is what it would be like as a human completely untainted by the effects of sin. Just follow me for just a second. Uh, um, Just follow me, track with me. Jesus did not have a sin nature like the rest of us have when we are born, right? Romans chapter 5. He wasn't born with a sin nature. That's why the virgin birth is so important. It disrupted the normal pattern of birth and set forward a new man, unlike the old man, Adam. He wasn't born with a sin nature. He wasn't born with a proclivity to sin from birth like we all have. He was unique in that way. So with no sin nature and a life that is free from the deeds of sin, because Jesus was a sinless human, he never sinned. He was free from the effects of sin upon his mind. You know, sin ravages every bit of our being, our bodies, our minds, our wills, nothing about us is left untouched by the effects of sin. That's why even the smartest people in the world still make mistakes in their logic and reasoning sometimes. It's because sin affects our cognitive ability, our ability to think. But what happens if you have a brain that is not affected by sin? A mind that hasn't been weakened by original sin. The mind of Christ never had any shadow or darkness ever come into it. But it was the, a mind that humans were intended to possess from the beginning that Christ had before sin came into the world. So given all of that, 
It's not surprising to find Jesus learning and retaining with wisdom beyond his years without having to tap into his divinity. Does that make sense? He has a fully human mind, a fully sin-free human mind. But Mary's still mad, right? She's still upset, and understandably so. She says in verse 48, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Great distress. O duomeno, it's the Greek word, great distress. It means deep mental pain or trauma. It takes our minds back to Simeon's words, right? That Jesus would be a source of emotional pain, in a sense, to Mary. Why was Jesus there? Well, Jesus' response, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? The first recorded words of Jesus, literally, in any gospel, as a 12-year-old boy, did you not know I must be in my father's house? And these first words, they define the person and mission of Jesus that Luke will draw out through the rest of his gospel. So you see from his response there that Jesus has a keen sense of who he is and why he was sent. Even here at the age of 12, he possesses the self-understanding that he has a unique, special relationship with God. He calls him my father, my father. And with this insight into this relationship, we see him also embracing his mission. He's sitting in the temple, the central place of worship and of learning in Judaism, the temple in Jerusalem. And he understands that he came to teach and to show and to demonstrate how worship and salvation find their apex and final end in himself. Jesus understood, even here at 12 years old, who he was and why he came. His parents struggled. They didn't understand. We struggle, right? We don't understand sometimes. But Jesus did. And the rest of his days on earth would be spent instructing and bringing people back into the kingdom of God. So what do we do with this? Real quick, as we land the plane here, what do we do with this? Well, first, the person of Christ demands a response. You know, Simeon's saying of Christ being a cornerstone for some, stumbling block to others, he is either the Messiah or he's not. There's no middle ground. Christ's coming requires us to respond in one of two ways, believe in him or reject him. You can't just toy around with him. That's not an option. Believe him or reject him. And then second, in Jesus, humanity and deity are found in this, this mysterious, unfathomable, yet necessary and beautiful reality. You know, we can't explain it. Can't fully comprehend it. We can only behold it. Gaze on it sit in the mystery of that which our minds cannot fathom. And praise, all we can do is praise God for his mercy and bring it about. And we're gonna do that soon. But let me pray together and then we'll continue on in our worship. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that 
He lived a life that we could not live, a life free from sin, a life free from rebellion, a life free not only from the deeds of sin, but the motives of sin. He kept the law for us. When we cannot keep it ourselves, he was our substitute in life as much as he was our substitute in death. And we thank you, Lord, for him. We thank you, Lord, for Mary and Joseph, for their embracing of this responsibility to parent the Son of God. Cannot imagine how inept one would feel knowing that they've been tasked with this responsibility, but you provided what they needed. So, Father, we, I, I just ask for us to, instead of trying to explain away a lot of the mysteries we have concerning your person, instead of trying to just over-theologize them or anything like that, Father, may we just embrace the tension and the mystery and sit in it, not being lazy, but at the same time understanding that we are finite and you're infinite. And so may we fix our eyes on the wonder and the majesty and the awe of who you are and in your great grace and mercy through which and by which you sent your very son to save us in a way that we could not save ourselves. Thank you for Christ. I pray in his name, amen.